Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Christopher Callahan, the Vice President of Human Resources for Exeter Health Systems in Exeter, New Hampshire. Exeter Health Resources is a healthcare system that includes the Exeter Hospital, a 100-bed community hospital, core physicians, a multi-specialty physician group, and Rockingham VNA. Chris has over 30 years of experience in human resource management in the healthcare industry, having served in a number of hospitals and health systems prior to coming to Exeter Health Resources. Human resources is a critical support function in any organization, and it has evolved dramatically, as Chris explains in the interview, from a tactical, routine, paperwork-driven service to a strategic asset that can have a powerful impact on an organization's success over Chris's career. Chris and I had a lengthy conversation, so I have produced two versions of this podcast, an abridged version and an extended version. You are listening to the abridged version. If you would like to listen to the extended version, please check our website for the link. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Also, I am excited to announce that we are now getting the podcast transcribed thanks to a financial gift from the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Thanks for listening. And here is Chris Callahan. Welcome to The Forge, Chris. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. Let's talk a little bit about Exeter Health Resources as an organization before we talk specifically about your new department uh, and your responsibilities. So Exeter, kind of in brief, what, what, what are the... Com- I've had Kevin Callahan on. He's already said all this yep. stuff, but in case somebody hasn't listened to his interview, give us a brief rundown of kind of what, what is Exeter Health Resources. 100-bed hospital, about 117 years in business, a physician employment company that started 20 years ago has now grown to 600 employees. The hospital has about uh, 1,500 employees. We have a visiting nurse group that is up to about 150 employees. Over the last five years, we have gotten out of two lines of business. One was a for-profit fitness facility called Synergy. Had about 100 employees, so we kind of went through a, uh, you know, closing that business and the people aspects of that. We also closed a provider of service called Exeter Healthcare, which used to be a long-term rehabilitation or a short-term rehabilitation hospital and a ventilator-dependent care unit. The ventilator-dependent unit had about 10 patients in it, and they were long-term ventilator patients. I think the longest patient that we had as a resident uh, there, and they referred to them as residents, was 10 years. Wow. And That's a long the, time to be on a ventilator. It's a very long time to be on a ventilator. Um, and so the people that did that work, again, were, were, you know, were just exceptional, exceptional people. And we had a short-term rehabilitation unit, which was 14 or 15 beds. And the uh, 
both of those businesses be really became unprofitable, you know, to the point that we couldn't, the rest of the organization couldn't subsidize them anymore. So do you, does your office provide the HR support to the entire organization, or uh, are there separate HR entities for the other organizations? No, we, we provide centralized HR okay. um, for the entire organization. I do have some HR business partners that will cross companies, and they'll principally support the visiting nurse group. There are 150 employees. They need to understand that business. I have a couple of HR partners who do cross companies. So okay. some of the VNA, they have a couple of departments at the hospital. Some people support primary care at core physicians and also some other support uh, departments. I have one partner that supports kind of the inpatient hospital procedural units. So the, emerg the operating rooms, endoscopy, and she also supports the outpatient practices at core that are doing that type of medicine. So I have to do a little bit of What's the total nature. population supported them about? We have uh, 2,400 employees over all of those companies. And is that the primary driver of your kind of workload? Is it, is it, is it a headcount? Yeah, primarily it's headcount. We also deal with you know, with contractors and, and tracking, you know, contractors that come into our organization as well. I also have responsibility for the volunteer program at the hospital. And we have about 120 volunteers that come in and, and, and help us in various ways. How does the HR department now, how is the HR department organized? What are the, who, who reports to you? Okay. I have a person that does compensation and, uh, and benefits. Sue Callahan, no relationship to me or to Kevin. There's <laughs> so too many, way too many Callahans there. I have a gentleman who runs both recruitment as well as pay, payroll and HRIS. His name is Charlie Thomas. Not Callahan. Not Callahan. I have a person that supports our internal communication and our intranet. Lisa Caracosta, so that's an interesting segment of you know a function that most people associate with marketing and communications. Yeah. We have one person that is dedicated to taking those messages that we need to get out and focusing them on the employees. So through the intranet, through a you know twice uh, a biweekly internal newsletter, how do we? craft, you know, different messages that go out to uh, our various constituencies at, at any one time. So that is, that's a little bit uh, unique to, uh, to our setup. I have an organizational development person, Sue DeMarco, who has also gone out and developed an expertise in coaching. So she's certified as a coach, and it's actually prove very, very beneficial. Uh, for what kind of coaching? What do you mean by coaching? So I'm assuming she doesn't have like a whistle and um, gym shorts. No, not a whip a gun and a, a whip gun <laughs> and a chair sometimes. <laughs> so she will come in to do executive coaching with, uh, with leadership. Okay. So it is, she'll come in, she'll chat with you, she'll do a 360, you know, kind of uh, performance evaluation on you. You invite, you know, other people to give comments on your leadership style. It's anonymous. Um, she shares those results with you and then works with you to develop a plan 
to fine-tune management skills, to change communication skills um, in order to improve executive performance. Um, it's mostly we do it at a department uh, director level. So it is very intense. It really is you know, management coaching. How do you be a better leader? And it's proven to be you know, quite effective. Uh, coaching is, is kind of a new thing that's going on. And she had the foresight to go out a couple of years ago and say, I really would like to do this. I think that it could be of value to us. And she's run a number of coaching management development programs that were very specific and are much more applicable um, now as physicians are moving into leadership roles within healthcare organizations. There's a, there's a need for physician executive skill development. They're really, really good at the medicine you know, part, but they don't teach you how to lead teams in, uh, in medical school. So right. she works, she's doing a lot of work with physicians right now. Interesting. Other sections? So you, you said comp and benefits, recruiting, internal communications, organizational development. I have a team of HR business partners okay. that will go out and support department directors and, and their vice presidents in their line of business with HR stuff. Everything from onboarding to kind of doing some paperwork to make sure that the costs get in the right place to disciplinary and uh, coaching matters that they have with, with their staff. One of the initiatives that Sue is actually working on, Sue DeMarco, is to how to train up our HR partners in coaching techniques. So I can take one person now and diffuse that knowledge through four or five other folks that do this in their daily practice anyway. Yeah. But it may give them some new skills, some new thought processes, some new approaches. So these folks are generalists? They are generalists. They're, but they're, they're really, they're not doing recruiting. You know, so the typical HR generalist is recruiting benefits. They do, they do everything. Okay. These folks we have, you know, tightened up their scope so that they're really employee relations and, you know, some tactical management development. And, you know, a little bit of succession planning, a little bit of moving helping managers move people into the right place. Sometimes the right place is not in our organization anymore. But holding and helping those managers to achieve a level of accountability that you know they may not otherwise achieve. So they help them do maybe evaluations and you know, give them thoughts on them, evaluations. Okay. Um, we try to line up our systems so that if you have some disciplinary action in an employee during the course of a year, yeah. that that is actually reflected on their performance evaluation. Okay. And sometimes managers, you know, don't do that. Well, that was in the early part of the year. They're much better today. Yeah. We're evaluating people for the body of work during this calendar period. So if they did it this year, then it needs to be reflected. And, you know, to get them to document that because the complexity of the legal process when you're looking to take disciplinary action or end someone's employment really relies on a lot of documentation, contemporaneous notes, 
you know, to prove that uh, you, you, you made a good faith effort to get them to improve their performance. Besides the fact that it's the right thing to do to communicate yeah. um, clearly and effectively to employees just where they stand. Yeah. So, Can you talk a little bit about an, what, what makes an effective evaluation system? You, you must have seen a number of them over the course of your career. Yeah, I, I think that an evaluation system is effective if it supports the mission, vision, and values of the organization. So one of the things that we've done at Exeter a number of years back is move away from a performance evaluation system that was solely based on the duties and responsibilities in your job description. Because healthcare has changed and is now a team sport, it's not an individual sport. So the way that you interact you know, with patients, the way that you interact with your coworkers, the way you're supportive of our values as an organization. So compassion, uh, flexibility and initiative, creativity and optimism, efficiency in your work, you know, are some of the values that, that we have. So you can be really, really good at the task, but really not so good at create, being creative and optimistic and flexible. And those are the, uh, the aspects of employees that in these days and times, with the amount of change that's going on in healthcare, you really need people that live up to those values, almost more so than being very technically competent, but you know, but poison to the team. I, I you know, I'm a Yankee fan, so I can use the "How long are you going to let Manny be Manny?" Rodriguez from the Red Sox. He could hit home runs, but he was just he was poison in the clubhouse. And the, the Red Sox eventually sent him off to, I think they sent him to, to Los Angeles, where he, he wound up crashing and burning relatively quickly. So this is how do teams work better. And that's, that's some of the things that, you know, that we're finding. And we, I think that we have improved organizational performance because we have aligned what success looks like much more with our mission, vision, and values than you know, we did just kind of looking at tasks on a job description. Interesting. Can you talk a little bit about what does your compensation and benefits division do? Comp um, looks at a number of different um, you know salary surveys. Um, we're continuously looking at you know what the market is doing. So every job in the organization gets an evaluation of where their market position is every year. It is, it's a lot of work. And our comp philosophy is to pay at, at market averages. So that means that some people are going to pay a bit higher than we will, and some people will pay a bit lower than we will. But we want to be competitive you know, in the labor market, really both with compensation and then you know, in their role and in benefits, to also take a look at what the benefit packages are available in the market and develop a total compensation program, both comp and benefits, that is attractive, that seeks to reward you know, good performance. And hopefully that in combination with a uh, culture and a good working environment that department directors are, are providing, our employees don't think about going someplace else other than you know, retiring one day. 
I think that we're we're more successful than the rest of the market at doing that. Yeah. Um, Why is that? Because I think the the balance of all three of those things, the comp benefits and working environment, has created a good place for people to work. I know that uh, I am under the statewide average for employee turnover by three percentage points. So it's a pretty statistically, I don't know if it's statistically significant, three percentage points on you know 2,400 employees is a lot more people we'd have to be recruiting for if they left. So if you can keep people, it, it just improves you know the working environment. You're not continually training and retraining people. The cohesiveness of the work team is, is much better. So comp and benefits really is, you know, their goal is to make sure that we're market competitive, but also recognize that we have fiduciary responsibility to the organization, you know, to make sure that we're not spending scarce resources in, in areas that, that we don't need to. Because there's always more resources that, you know, needed than we have money to, to spend on them. So, that's their balancing work is to is to get that right. So it's I, I want them to cover the you know bottom two or three rungs of Maslow's hierarchy of needs pretty well. Yeah. And then turn the love needs and self actualization needs over to uh, to the managers that uh, you know that they're working with. So. <laughs> I like how you said that. Uh, so you mentioned recruiting and having to get people. What is the recruiting? What is it like to try to find people to fill your jobs? And, and you have a pretty wide range of, of jobs we that do. you have to fill. I mean, it's everything from food service and, and housekeeping jobs to orthopedic surgeons, radiation therapists, nurses. You know, we have a lot of different job descriptions that are out there that we're trying to cover. It is, it is challenging. The demographics of the employment market in the seacoast are changing. The first thing is that unemployment is probably at, at or near historical lows. New Hampshire's unemployment rate is, uh, is 3%. Right now, the national unemployment rate is 5%. And I've heard, I haven't nailed it down, but I've heard people say that the unemployment rate on the seacoast is about 1.6%. So that candidate pool is not very deep. You know, I want to be diving into that. And the other part of the demographic is that southern New Hampshire especially is getting older. So the in-migration from northern Massachusetts has pretty much stopped. Uh, that was the New Hampshire advantage for the last 20 years. And the people that are moving in are moving into 55 and older communities. So they are not they are not candidates for the positions that I have open, or they're not candidates for, you know, long-term employment with us if they're interested in working. So it has put a lot of pressure on recruitment and kind of up the line to me to figure out what the training streams are of younger people coming out of school or to sponsor training programs from which we can get employees either right out of training or actually we're doing a model now with Great Bay Community College where we're hiring people and paying them to go to a 
12-week medical assistant training course that in cooperation with Great Bay Community College we designed. It was an associate's degree full two-year program. We got it, uh, them to uh, do it in 12 weeks, Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, eight weeks in a classroom, four weeks in a physician's office doing clinical rotations, and we pay them to go to school. Mm -hmm. A little bit expensive to do it that way, but there was no other market out there that, uh, that I could recruit from, and Core Physicians is expanding you know, tremendously, and the model of care in their physician's office is changing. So we need well-qualified, well-trained medical assistants. We've been running the program with Great Bay for about two years, and uh, we have now 35 graduates of that program, and I think 33 of them are still with us. So in a time when medical assistant turnover in the state is running at 20%. So, so that's, that's pretty good keep. Yeah, for, that's a good keep. Yeah. So we're going to have to get into doing things differently than we have in the past beyond just putting an ad in the Sunday paper and seeing what paper applications come in the mail by Tuesday. You know, we're looking to use social media. We're looking to use LinkedIn. We're on all of the job boards. So we've, you know, we've actually, I don't, you can't get a paper application at Exeter anymore. It's all right. online. Right. So. Well, it's neat. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about kind of your talent management and kind of, I guess it would fit into the organ, organizational development mm -hmm. side of things. So how does Exeter develop leaders People who are going to step into you know, supervisor management mm -hmm. and upper management roles. We have a new manager program, and we just kicked it off yesterday. And so we invite new managers who we've recruited to the organization to come into a nine-session program where we teach them mission, vision, values. We teach them what is important to us from a leadership perspective, what we expect of them. Uh, we teach them about human resources, kind of rules and regs and, and uh, philosophy. Uh, we teach them customer service training skills that we're going to be teaching and have taught their staff so that they're all on the same page with that. We teach them about the development of lean thinking in the Toyota production system, which we're heavily invested in. So how do we get them to engage their employees in helping the employees improve their, uh, their work processes? How do we make sure that they're creating an environment of psychological safety so people can raise their hand and say to a nurse or a manager or a physician, hold on just a second. I don't think this is the right thing to do. Let's take a time out and let's think about what we're doing before, you know, we make a mistake. Yeah. You know, we're a hierarchical organization, much like the military. And we have taken some concepts from military aviation and from the aviation industry and developed and actually uh, used a program from uh, the federal government, it's called Team Steps, um, that teaches people how to communicate. 
the way that um, pilots do in a uh, in a cockpit, so that there is um, clear communication, so that no one is afraid to provide mutual support and to keep other people out of trouble. So we teach that. That is going to be probably the next uh, training initiative that we have is a development of psychological safety with all of our team members because we know retaliation is, you know, is a big deal in, in the workplace now. So people don't want to raise questions or problems because they're afraid of what the retaliation is going to be. And it's contemporaneous. Last night, you know, two young women came forward and said Donald Trump did things to them. And why didn't, you know, why didn't they report that? Because they were afraid of what the retaliation was going to be. So it's, it, it really is probably more rampant in society that, you know, than we want to know. I think some of the walls on that have come down, but it's still something to be concerned about. So that and a number of other things we provide to new managers coming in. And then we also invite existing staff who may have expressed an interest to, to their leaders. Um, you know, if they want to get in on this. So it's, you know, it's a, a, a big investment of their time to get this training and understanding. It's great for us because if they're staff now, they get to go back to the unit and they go, now I understand what they're thinking about. What is the context that we're doing this in? How can we get them to accept roles as change managers within their units before they're ready to step up. So um, that has been, you know, that, that's been a good program. We've been running that for probably six years, um, generally twice a year, sometimes three times a year. Do you have a systematic way of identifying future leaders and identifying talent that could potentially step up? It's, it's it's a little more informal than maybe I'd like it to be. Yeah. Um, we actually had a process a couple of years ago where we asked department directors to talk to the top performers in their areas. So going back to our performance evaluation process, talk to the top 40%, everybody who is rated as an exceeds ex expectations, and just ask them, so what, what are you looking for? What, what can I do to make you more engaged here? You know, where do you want to be? And, you know, we found that probably about 50% of the people said, you know, what you can do for me is leave me alone. I don't <laughs> want to do my job. Right. And I want to go home and I want to play with the kids and the dog. And, right. And we said, great, we're all good with that. You know, we had another group that wanted to advance in management. And one of the problems, you know, that we had is, we don't have a lot of leadership positions come open. And so when you have 20% of your top performers wanting to be the boss one day, and I'm the boss, and I'm saying, i got to tell you, I ain't going anywhere for another 10 years. And they go, well, you know, well so what else can you do for me? It creates some, some challenging conversations with the department directors. Is What am I supposed to say to them now? It's like, well, you know, I mean, you can train them up. They could go to another organization, you know, but this is a marathon, it's not a sprint. So what would be wrong if, you know, one of your really good people goes away to another organization for a couple of years, 
and then comes back when there's, when there's an opening. Now they're not stepping up as a staff member into a leadership role. Now they're transferring uh, where they've had an opportunity to practice their leadership skills. Granted, it wasn't with us, but now they can come back as a, uh, as a more developed leader. Do you see that happen? Do you have a lot of boomerangs, if, as I think they're referred to? Uh, we do. We have, we have some people who you know, have come back, who have stepped up. We've had a couple of people come up from internally in our ranks. In fact, our, our current vice president for acute care services, we actually um, figured out that she was really ready to make a move up to a vice president. She was a department director before, and our vice president of acute care services at that time had the top performer chat with her and said, well, so where do you want to go? And she said, well, I, I want to sit in your chair. And I've actually interviewed a couple of places. Uh, I haven't get the job, but you know that's where I want to go, and I want to go pretty soon. She says, well, thanks for letting me know, because I'm looking to leave in about four or five months. So we, you know, internally, we developed you know, a high-level executive who had great credibility because she had been at the front lines of leadership for 10 years. So all of a sudden the troops know who the vice president for acute care services is because they worked with her for 10 years. It, you know, it was, a, it was a nice success story and she's done very, very well. What do you find most challenging as the vice president of human resources for Exeter Health Resources? What's the um, most challenging part of your job? It's something that we've, we've dealt with a lot in, in the last five years and that's the pace of change. So one of the things that I asked these new leaders yesterday, many of whom have been with us for a while, when I ran a session yesterday, as I said, you know, change is, is tough. People don't like change. How many people have parked in the same parking spot within a spot or two? How many people do that every day when they come to work? That 80% of the hands in a room went up. I said, now you understand how difficult it is to change. And you think about all of the changes that have occurred in medicine, not only in the provision of care and the technology and the improved outcomes that we have with our patients, but in the financing, uh, in the business end, um, and just in the last five years since the Affordable Care Act um, you know, came into being, and we've rec really required physicians to use computerized electronic medical records. It, the, the changes you, you, you know, are, are vast and they are very, very fast as well as being vast. And we as human beings don't deal with change management, you know, change really well. So we've had to focus on how do we get our leadership to explain the context in which we're operating as a, you know, as a business in, in the provision of care and get them to communicate that down to the front lines of, so why can't I park in the same spot that I've been parking at for the last 10 years? And unless you're good at providing that context, you're just, you know, that frontline employee is going to be at sea as to what, why do I have to change my parking spot? I really don't understand. So that's probably the biggest challenge we've had in, in the last five years, and I, I don't see the change slowing down very much. You know, I think back 35 years ago, maybe 40, my dad has a, had his gallbladder out, 
and he was in the hospital for a week, and he had a scar that went from one side of his belly to the next, and he was out of work for a month. In two years ago, I had a gallbladder attack, and I went to the, our emergency room, and they used a little handheld ultrasound machine and said, yep, you have gallstones? And the surgeon came in and said, you need to get them out? I said, okay, as long as I'm here. I was in the OR at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and I was returning work emails from my smartphone in my hospital bed at about 6.30 that night. And I was back to work uh, four days after I had my gallbladder out. But I was doing work for my hospital bed right. to the surgeon that took <laughs> my gallbladder out uh, that night. So yeah. it's just incredible when you think the technolo technological advances that we've made in medicine. Yeah, that yeah, is amazing. Uh, and yeah, I think we are going to see a lot more change in the very near future. So speaking of change, how do you, as a, as a member of the senior executive team, what's your role? in the organization as, as, excuse me, what's your role on the team? You know, working with Kevin Callahan, your CEO, you said kind of early on HR was, you saw HR as kind of being a, kind of a professional nudge. Um, do you still see yourself in that role a little bit or is it something else? Um, I, I do. One of... How often yeah. do you get to tell Kevin he doesn't have any clothes on too? I kind of want to know about that. He's normally well-dressed, actually. Um, and, you know, sometimes he has that chat with me. Yeah. It is because he is an extraordinary thinker and he thinks um, much further ahead than the average CEO that I've worked with who isn't about meeting the numbers this quarter, but sometimes could get close to that. Kevin is really thinking four or five years down the road. And so sometimes I have a hard time keeping up with where his view of the healthcare system of the future is going to be. But I get to, to sometimes play, you know, asking the stupid HR question between why is, how does this initiative line us up to where we want to be three years down the road? And so it's a tug between the strategic and the tactical, and you know what do you want to do and in what sequence you want to do it. And then we're really good at coming up with plans and documents and measures to improve and you know so how do we you know hold ourselves accountable. And sometimes you get too focused in on the numbers and you don't take a step back to say, well I've achieved this number, but what does that really do from a strategic perspective? to move the organization further down the road. It's a constant tug back and forth, because as I said before, there, there are many more needs than there are resources available. Mm -hmm. So you, as a senior leader, you're always trying to figure out what can, what do we have to do now and what can wait. And uh, we've gotten into some Hoshin planning, which is all around, you know, what are the vital few things that you have to do and it's much harder to figure out what you need to take a pass on than it is to figure out what you want to do. We're constantly saying there's too many things on the list. I want to just ask you a couple of quick questions about leadership as we've gone fairly long. Um, so a couple of quick questions about leadership. What would you say is your leadership philosophy? 
encapsulated a few words. Um, I think, you know, at this point in my career, at, at my level, <clears throat> it really is to empower the people that um, work for me to think creatively towards, you know, those big picture goals that, that we have. And to a certain extent, get out of their way. I have smart people, they want to contribute, and I could probably come up with all of the answers, but it wouldn't be engaging, you know, to them, you know, and it's more fun to ask them questions and, and watch them think through all of the, uh, the permutations and uh, contingencies themselves and help them get a, get a good plan. And, you know, you, as you, you know, get grayer around the temples, you maybe get a little bit wiser and, you know, let those folks at the front lines kind of have a little bit of fun because they're going to have, they're going to be much more invested if they own the work and own the process than if I were to impose it on them. How would you say your leadership style has changed over your career? Well, early on, you're, you're much more tactical in smaller organizations, in roles that are much closer to the front lines. You need to be tactical. As you kind of work your way up the ladder, I think that you can be more strategic and do good work through other people as opposed to you know, doing it yourself. How is that adjustment for you? Because you're a leader of leaders now. Yeah. At one point, you probably... For supervising yourself. Right. And, and, so, yeah, right. I, was, I was chief cook and bottle washer right, uh, when right. I started out. What was that? What were those steps like? As you first, you were supervising, then you were supervising supervisors. You know, that's a that move from supervising to supervising supervisors is often a difficult it, transition. It, it's hard to let go because there are some some trust levels. So you need to make sure that you trust the person that's doing the work. But it's a whole lot easier to take an objective look at someone else's work than it is to take an objective look at your work. So as I've come into organizations where I had additional resources underneath me, it's really kind of fun to, you know, to take that, that role and you evolve into a, you know, into a, uh, a teacher, you know, and a mentor much more than a, than a doer, which is, uh, which is a lot of fun. Can you give an example of a leadership lesson you maybe had to learn the hard way? Well, I talked a little bit before about some of the fit issues, you know, in cultures when, you know, I was looking to join an, another organization. And those fit issues are really tough. I haven't figured out how to make perfect knowledge yet so that I can make great decisions on which teams I wanted to join. Certainly the team I'm on now is, uh, you know, is a great team. So yeah. to some extent, I'd rather be lucky than good. But there are there are some challenges when you get into a situation that you have misread in terms of what you thought the job was versus um, you know what they thought your capabilities were. So it's it's really f work hard at at finding out what the real culture is when you're joining an organization. Wander around, sit in waiting rooms, sit in the cafeteria, and have a critical eye. You know, I mean. Sometimes you really want to, you know, get out of where you are, and you would really like to join any other organization, and you know you have to just take your time a little bit, make sure it's the right fit. You, as a, as the director of HR, vice president of HR, you've you've had some unique opportunities to see where people fail. So, 
Where have you seen leaders fail, and what what lessons would you take from that? Where I've seen leaders fail is generally not in you know their technical competencies. It's in how they interact with uh, with other people and and other team members. It is you know the ability to influence others and get them to see things that they can't see right now, as opposed to dragging them there, kicking and screaming, that is, there really is the difference. The, the ability to work well with others is you know, really critical in, uh, in the executive suite. There aren't very many executives around anymore that are banging shoes on table and saying, you're going to do it my way or the highway. And that, that's where you know, people historically have, uh, have failed. They have got in front of or behind key constituencies, board, medical staff, uh, their, their peers, the employees that, uh, that they're leading. And you know, there's a big gap, and it, it just doesn't end well. Uh, same question, but focused on kind of early careerists. So you know our program here is mm-hmm. we're training young folks, undergraduates in particular, to go into the healthcare administration field. Where do you see young folks come into the field, have their struggles? Maybe not completely fail, but where, where, where do you find them getting taken aside and saying, hey, you need to be redirected? Yeah. Young people coming into leadership positions are... You know, placed in very challenging roles because sometimes they're they're leading old people like me, who have been parking in the same parking spot for 35 years, and you're 23 years old and you're gonna tell me how to do it? Uh, I don't think so. So you know, the adoption of some of the you know, the lean philosophy principles about honoring you know the frontline workforce and empowering them and engaging them in process improvement is, is probably a key skill because you're not going to get those employees to move from positional authority. Kind of those days are dead. Right. So, so back to your three-credit three lesson uh, yeah. <laughs> on authority and position. Oh, absolutely. Authority and influence. So... I think that would be a good style for them to uh, to adopt. It's it's much more a questioning style. Tell me about is probably the two best words that they can they can utter, so that they're learning from people. And then, you know, I call it asking the stupid HR question. You've had thirty years of experience in healthcare and human resource management. How has the field of human resource management changed? Uh, and specifically, how have the changes in healthcare changed and affected the practice of human resource management in the healthcare industry? I think that you know the fact that we're much less tactical than we are strategic, you know, at the senior levels. I think there is a much deeper appreciation uh, within executives all throughout the organization about the impact of culture, about civility in the workforce. And getting the best out of every team, you know, member that to improve the, the delivery of care at all levels. The breaking it down of, of hierarchies is, is really important. So allowing housekeepers to 
raise their hand when they see something wrong on a nursing floor is is critical. But we, we still have to understand that you know those housekeepers still probably have a view of you know the world and their place in it that is not as important as uh, you know as they think that it is. So it's how do we you know treat each other with dignity you know and respect in addition to the fact that it's the right thing to do, but in order to harness the uh, you know the experiences of everybody who comes into your workforce. I think we have a much better appreciation, you know, for that now, certainly, than we did, you know, back in the day when you just did what the doctor said. And, you know, as I prepared for this, you know, just thought back 30 years ago to some of the things that were quite commonplace in, in hospitals that I worked at early on. They just would not fly today, not, not in a New York minute. If you had to pick one book that an early careerist healthcare administrator who's aspiring to be a senior leader should read, what would you recommend, one or, or more than one, if you'd like? Well, I, I prepared for this question. I had to think about it a little bit. Actually, there, there are two, and we had talked you know, a little bit earlier uh, about a book that was interesting to me. It's called Into the Storm, a, a Study in Command. It's actually a Tom Clancy book, and he wrote it with uh, General Fred Franks. It's a, it's a great story of growth and development in, uh, in the armed forces and the execution of training right through the development of war planning and, and execution is, is really quite interesting and I've actually learned a lot from it. The second book is a little bit heavy, but it's A Team of Rivals by uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Uh, I know that one. Uh, uh, just a fascinating view of Lincoln and his management genius in how he worked to preserve the Union and to work with a team of rivals, people that he was running against for the Republican nomination for the presidency, and got him into his cabinet and how he held uh, that group together for, uh, for eight years. Fascinating read. It's awful heavy, though. It's about <laughs> 700 pages. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, well, that's a good a book. One. That's it's a good a, book. It's yeah, a great I one. agree. So let's close on this. Um, again, for my students who are getting ready to head out into the, into the healthcare industry, why should, they get, why should they look at a career in, in human resource management within the healthcare industry? What's particularly rewarding about it, you think? Well, I think that, you know, if, if you're not... If you're not focused on a uh, on a clinical career, if you're not if you're not one of the STEM people, and I'm not one of the STEM people, so I I feel slighted sometimes at the at the emphasis on science, technology, engineering, and math because I ain't one of those. Right. Dealing with with people and helping them achieve their potential is is a lot of fun. Doing it in an industry that is, you know, by its nature, helpful and healing, brings a joy to the work that you may not get in, you know, hotel, hospitality, you know, manufacturing, um, accounting, or fiscal services. They may be a little bit more lucrative, you know, if you catch the right wave, but, you know, but you have to like what you do at the end of the day and there are a whole lot more good days than there are bad days 
especially at Exeter, you know, right now. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Chris. It's a pleasure to talk with you, and I hope uh, it's of value to your students. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.